Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 6. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Jake Pine, a co-investigator with the Transpulse Project, a community-based research project that is investigating the impact of social exclusion and discrimination on the health of trans people in Ontario. I'm your host, Matthew Hollingshead. My name's Jake Pine. I would say I don't sort of fit neatly under any one title, so I just use the phrase sort of community-based researcher for the most part. Um, but I'm a social worker, and I do I do community development work. Right now, I coordinate uh, three different small projects that are based at, at a couple of different places. One's at Rainbow Health Ontario, one's at Concordia University, one's at um, researching for LGBTQ health team at CAMH. Uh, and then I'm also an investigator on a couple of research teams and I'm an upcoming social work doctoral student. I'll begin in September. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Um, and we're talking today about the TransPulse Project, which is one of the research studies you've been involved in. I suspect that, um, that many of the folks listening to us probably won't know about TransPulse. I'm wondering if you could just give us a bit of a, a rundown about what that project is. Absolutely. So TransPulse is a, a community-based research project that's funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and we are exploring the impact of social exclusion and discrimination uh, on the health of trans people in Ontario. Uh, so C- CBR, or community-based research, means sort of partnership between academic researchers and community members who are affected. And in our case, it's a partnership between academic researchers that are at Western University and Wilfrid Laurier, and then a number of community members and then a couple of community agencies, so the Sherman Health Center and, and the 519. And we use a model of community control. So people do community-based research in different ways. Uh, it's always a, a variation on, on academic research, or I would say an improvement on it, in that researchers work with communities. And in our case, we're trying to sort of push that a bit further. So we use a model of community control where we say the community owns this research project. So we have a majority of community investigators on the team, and major decisions are always made with a majority of community investigators present. How did you get involved with Transpulse? So I so Transpulse was already going by the time I got involved. It's actually been quite a long study. So it began in earnest in 2005. I believe the conversations were beginning in 2004. So it began in 2005, and we're just wrapping up this year. So it's about eight years. And I didn't get involved until 2007. So I came on board with a staff role, and I later became an investigator. So I'm an investigator on the research team at this point. But my original role was I was the community development coordinator. So my role was connecting the project with the community. So we are, like for us, trans people have had some very negative experiences with research. And I don't think that's not unique uh, to trans communities. I think it's quite common in marginalized communities. I think Aboriginal people would say something similar of feeling like, Research has been exploitative or it's been pathologizing or hasn't sort of met their needs. So so for us, there's a big, you know, one of our goals is to build community. In fact, our sort of tagline is building communities through research. Um, so we have guiding principles that sort of guide our work, and I, I won't list them all, and people can see them on our website if they want, transpulseproject.ca. But one of, the, one of our goals is to have maximum impact. Um, so... For us, that means that we want to impact health policy, and 
and impact health policy means you have to collect your data in a particular way. So we used quite a unique uh, methodology that I won't go into the details of. Um, but in order to produce the sort of the most bulletproof <laughs> data that we could produce, so data that would be uh, that is less easily dismissed. So in 2007, the project did uh, three community soundings, so sort of focus groups in Ottawa, Toronto, and Guelph and heard from about 80 trans community members. And then with that information, we developed a survey. It took about a year to develop that survey that was quite comprehensive, so an 87-page survey that reached 433 trans people in Ontario. And the data analysis process is still ongoing, so we're still sort of getting results out. But at this point, we're the largest trans health study that's ever been conducted in the country. And if I could sort of toot our horn, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research named us one of the country's top 10 success stories in sex, gender, and health research. So this is all, these are all the things that we're proud of at this point. Yeah, that's quite the accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Well, it's, it's really, it's a big, it's a joint accomplishment. So there's been a lot of people who've worked on this project over the years who ought to take credit for that. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have any challenges trying to get the community involved? I'm imagining since you... Um, touched on some of the negative experiences folks from the trans community have had uh, with research in the past, that there might have been some lingering anxiety or apprehension or maybe hostility there? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so that's why, you know, it, it's been important to us from the start to communicate with the community constantly um, about who we are and what we're doing and to be very transparent. Um, the majority of investigators on the research team are trans people, uh, but we also had a community engagement team for for several years while the survey was active, um, and that was a team that I coordinated, and those were trans people, trans sort of activists or leaders, community leaders who were in different parts of the, of the province um, who helped to be sort of ambassadors for the project and communicate with their communities about it. But yeah, it was challenging, and one of the things that was challenging is that, you know, about 30 different trans people at some point helped uh, to develop our survey and everybody wants the important information covered, right? Because it's never been done before. We don't know when we'll get a chance to do it again. We want to capture this and that. And so we ended up with a very comprehensive survey, so 87 pages. And one of our challenges was getting people to fill this out, right? Because it took several hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually, a lot of people did. So 433 people took several hours to fill something out. And most people didn't even claim their honorarium. So there was an honorarium of $20, and most people said, you know, I, I don't need it, or they donated it to an organization, etc. So there was, there was, in the end, I think, a lot of community buy-in. I guess that speaks really to the importance of the work and the, the importance the community sees in, in having that kind of information out there. Yeah, yeah, I think there's two things there. There's sort of the way that we engaged with the community, and then I, there's just the, uh, the fact that we tapped into a need. For me, because TransPulse was already going when I joined, I didn't design the project, right, so I don't sort of take credit for that. But it got me thinking about why I started doing research to begin with, because I was really uninterested in research, I would say, about uh, 10 years ago. And I got interested because I was working on a project for which we just had a, like a really complex problem that we couldn't solve, that we couldn't figure out what to do about. And I won't sort of go into detail about that. I think that's probably uh, an experience that a lot of practitioners have, uh, have familiarity with. Yeah, you mean the experience of having a complex problem? That, yeah. Yeah, and I think I started to see, you know, okay, this is what, this is what research can do, right? There's a, there's a certain legitimacy there. 
And with Transpulse, I think it was about documenting something that people that people already knew happened. And that was part of how we framed the project, is we said, we know transphobia is bad for our health, we need your help to prove it. That this is about proving something that we already know. So about sort of quantifying experiences, translating experiences that are felt uh, into a story that can ideally spur action, you know? Mm-hmm. So, the, so the context for that in Ontario for trans people, when we talk about health, immediately it's about health care. So doctors uh, refusing to see trans people, doctors saying, you know, we quote from one of the participants in our studies, a doctor said to them, please go somewhere else, right? So that's a, a powerful message that mm-hmm. was... Uh, said literally to that person, but it is said in many, in many ways, um, not always so explicitly. And when people do have doctors and, and do see providers, there's a lot of disrespect there. So a lot of people would, would avoid going to the doctor, even for basic needs, even emergency care. So that's sort of health care, and then also lack of access to trans-specific care, so access to hormone replacement therapies, to surgeries, things that are essential to the well-being of a lot of trans people. And really there's very poor access to that it's been it's been set up as a, as a psychiatric system to deal with what is just an aspect of, of everyday life for a lot of trans people and then because we are sort of thinking about health very broadly or health in terms of social determinants then for us we were also thinking needing to address really high levels of discrimination housing discrimination you know denial of access to things like social services mm-hmm. shelters um, really staggering levels of violence and harassment, and then the mental health impacts of that that we see from that, or the sort of mental health fallout of that, so substance use and suicidality, depression, etc. So that was the context in which we sort of, you know, began to look at this. Can you tell us about some of the key findings of the Transpost Project, Jake? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to focus on four key findings okay. that, uh, that may be of interest, I think, to child welfare workers uh, specifically. Uh, and one is that when we asked people at what age they became aware of their gender identity, uh, 59% said under age 10. So another 21% said they were aware of their gender identity between the ages of 10 and 14. And then in total, that means that 80% of trans people in the province were aware at age 14 or under hmm. that they were trans or if they didn't have a word for that, that they were in some way different than the people around them not gender typical. And I think that that, you know, that finding, it doesn't come as, it doesn't surprise trans people when you tell them this, but it has, I think, a lot of implications for people who work with youth. Mm-hmm. Does it surprise kind of uh, service providers to hear that that people are discovering their trans identity um, that young? I think it does, yes. And I think because, you know, the previous generation of trans people who transitioned often transitioned in their at middle age, mm-hmm. so if we say you know like the you know the seventies, eighties, etc., they probably knew as well at a young age in whatever way in whatever way you can know something that you don't have language for. Right? Mm-hmm. I think these days we have a lot more language for that, and young people are saying so um, at an early age. But I do think that it surprises service providers who imagine that people come to this as an adult. You know? mm-hmm. So the second finding I want to talk about. Uh, speaks to the vulnerability of trans youth in specific as compared to trans adults. So suicidality has you know, long been known to be a major issue in trans communities. Um, we certainly collected a lot of data about suicidality or suicide attempts 
the the youth sample in our project was 84 youth. So of the 433 trans people who responded to our survey, 84 of them were between the ages of 16 to 24. And what we found was that trans youth were nearly twice as likely to seriously consider suicide as adults. So 47% of trans youth um, had seriously considered suicide as opposed to 27% of adults. Mm. And we also found that trans youth were almost three times as likely to have attempted suicide within the past year. So 19% of the trans youth that we heard from had attempted suicide in the past year. That's almost one in five. That's incredible. Do you have a sense of how that relates to the kind of um, general population? General population, I don't know, but but even among the adults, it was seven percent who yeah. attempted suicide within the past year. I mean, we know it's we know it's much higher than the general population. Yeah, it's a good question about what the general population rate. It, it depends because um, it's not necessarily a question that that gets asked the entire population. Yeah, that's probably true. But for but for but for us, I mean, I think we think this is significant because uh, we have to consider that the trans adults are vulnerable in many ways, but that trans youth are perhaps more vulnerable. They maybe mm-hmm. that they are not able to protect themselves, take care of themselves, or take control over their lives. There may be some bar- more barriers to them doing that. So the third finding I want to mention relates to suicide as well. So for us, it's been really important to contextualize our findings around suicide by considering some of the determinants in them. And this is a major problem for addressing mental health for trans people in general, is that trans people are pathologized through the DSM diagnosis of gender identity disorder, which is about to become gender dysphoria. Can you unpack the DSM just a bit for folks who might not be familiar with the mental health language? Sure, yes. So so when I say DSM, I mean the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is a publication of the American Psychiatric Association that mm-hmm. It's sort of the going catalog of, of mental health disorders that has a lot of power, has a lot of power over how social issues are understood, uh, what kind of responses people get from mental health providers, what they can and can't have access to. Uh, so trans people have been listed as mentally ill in the DSM since 1980. And it's, it's currently going through a shift and probably a positive shift, but that's a long legacy. So, so what is difficult is trying to address mental health of trans people without pathologizing them, without saying, you know, trying to address what is actually going on. And that's part of the goal of our study is we want to hear from people what they're experiencing and what they need. And that's going to be really different than how they're understood through mm-hmm. the DSM. So we were very interested in, in unpacking the, our findings around suicide and looking at well, what determines this, what are, the, what are the real things going on. And one of those issues for trans youth was, was parental support. So we asked trans youth to rate the level of parental support that they had for their gender identity. So how supportive are your parents of your gender identity? And not the identity your parents wish you had, but the one by your actual identity. Uh, And so those who had strong parental support for their gender identity had higher self-esteem, they had higher life satisfaction, they had lower rates of depression, they were more likely to report good mental health, self-esteem, more likely to report that they had an adequate place to live. Um, and then more, most importantly, I think, when youth had strong parental support for the gender identity, the likelihood of a suicide attempt dropped by 93%. Oh. So for, for us, that's really clear, right, is that when we're talking about suicide, it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable that, that trans youth are going to experience this, that in fact we have, we have some power 
uh, within our families and our communities to keep people safer. Mm-hmm. So a 93% difference is very significant. Uh, and the fourth finding that I want to mention, um, and again, it relates to suicidality, but because of the prevalence of suicidality among trans people, mental health professionals often want to wait before they approve transition. So sometimes mental health professionals will say, well, we need to wait until you're emotionally stable, until you're psychologically stable, because transition is difficult. And it is difficult. Uh, But that means that there's often delays that are outside of people's control. Sometimes those delays can be indefinite. uh, if People are identified as being sort of high risk for, for mental health crisis. And those delays can be frustrating, and I think frustrating doesn't quite capture the force of, <laughs> of the feeling of, of being out of control in that way of, uh, of what you need and, what you, and, what, and specifically out of control of your body. But we found something important, which is that the suicide prevalence in our findings were, were really clearly linked to participants' stage of transition. So for those who wanted to transition, not all trans people want to access hormones or surgeries but many do. So for those who did, people at the highest risk for suicidality were people who were planning to transition but hadn't yet begun. And the people at the lowest risk were people who had completed transition. So 27% of people who were planning to transition but hadn't begun had attempted suicide in the past year. So 27%. And then among people who had completed transition already, completed in by their own definition, mm-hmm. 1% had mm-hmm. attempted suicide in the past year. So in, in light of that finding, and I guess um, in regards to child welfare practice, it sounds like there might be an opportunity for um, child welfare practitioners who are working with the trans youth to really advocate to speed along the transition process, if, if they're at all possible and able to do so? Absolutely. Hmm. It means dismantling barriers, right? right. So, so barriers that, are, that, that have been put there, often by well-meaning professionals, right? We don't want to rush into something that could put you at risk. But then what our findings show is that really, you know, stability for trans people who need to transition may be based on being able to transition. So transition may be a basic need for some people. And the necessary sort of foundation for for stability, it means we need to get people through that process faster if that's where they're going. So those findings are incredibly powerful. Um, It really speaks to the... I guess the impact that different institutions um, and I guess just our society in general have on shaping the experiences of, of young trans people. And I wonder if you can talk at all about how specifically child welfare practitioners can can use some of the information that trans policy has produced to to benefit the, the kids and, and youth that they, that they work with. Yeah, I think to begin with, what we need is an understanding of how much gender cuts to the core of a person's being, right? So... Mm-hmm how early trans youth may develop a sense of their identity. We know you know, we know for some it can be as early as 18 months or two years. That's something I hear through my other work. I work with parents of gender nonconforming kids who say, you know, my 18-month-old told me that they're a boy and not a girl, right? So we know that there is a, uh, that this begins early. And this is important for child welfare workers to understand how, how early they young people may be internalizing negative messages about themselves and how early how early they may be struggling with these issues. Sometimes these issues come out when youth are safe. So it's something I've heard before is with young children who are in uh, foster care or in care of some kind, that when they get into a stable home, sometimes that's the moment that they say, actually, you know, 
this is what's going on with me. I, I need to I need to share this, mm-hmm. which is something that fo- that it's important for foster parents or adoptive parents to be aware that this exists, right? So it's not an anomaly or an aberration, but you know, a trans experience of gender is is one of the experiences of gender. Um, is it fair to say that in some cases, if uh, if a young person is not feeling safe, their trans identity can even be invisible? To other people, absolutely. Like invisible to other people, yes. I mean, they they may have they may also suppress it for themselves. That may be necessary for their survival mm-hmm. uh, to not think about it. But I think to the outside world, yes. I think there are absolutely um, parents and, and professionals who are in the lives of kids who are shocked when when a teenager when teenagers say, you know, this is who I am. I need to transition. There may not have been any signs. So yeah, so so I think an understanding of, of how much gender is part of us, how early that develops for some people, and I think an understanding of some of the consequences of those negative messages that people receive. So an understanding of of the risks around suicidality, and our findings around transition and around the risk at the beginning of the transition process when people are delayed. I think that's important because we need to consider early transition options for trans youth. So those those options are are expanding uh, quite rapidly as we speak. Um, in North America, in particular, there are uh, a lot of clinics being set up to help young people access puberty suppressant hormones at uh, at the onset of puberty. So there are hormones um, can call, they're often called puberty blockers that can block safely block puberty. And what it does is it buys young people some time so their body doesn't sort of take off in the opposite direction that they need it to, buys them a bit of time to think about where they're going, and then after a couple of years, they could go off of those puberty blockers and allow puberty to take its course. Or they can decide, you know, that they're going to transition, that's where they're headed, and they can move on to cross-sex hormones. But what's important, I think, is for professionals to understand that these options exist. Mm-hmm exist that you can access them you know here in Toronto or and in other parts of the province and that this is sort of part of basic care part of a basic need that the youth might have something that we don't deny them in a way that we wouldn't deny other basic needs right? so there's a Norman Spack is a, a US pediatrician that that's works in this area and, and he said recently that you know in light of the high suicide rates for trans teens that he thinks not assisting young people when they reach puberty might be a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. So, you know, a violation of the physician's oath to, to do no harm. Mm. And I think what I would recommend to people is that they check out Rainbow Health Ontario's resources around gender-independent children and a new website that's being developed called gendercreativekids.ca. And I think the last thing I would say around the, the implications of our findings for child uh, welfare workers is that I think our findings tell us what a difference we can make when we're able to offer support. So the findings around parental support, around you know trans youth who had parental support versus trans youth who didn't, their health and well-being it was just night and day. Right. So this is this tells us that the difficulties that are facing trans youth are not inevitable. That we have some power over how they experience the world and the need to work with families and not leave families behind. I know that the research with gay and lesbian kids isn't transferable directly to trans youth, but I've read in some of that literature that sometimes service providers overlook parents as a source of support because they think that that they'll do more harm than good. Does that sound 
familiar to you? Yeah, and I think I think because parents may ha- may have a bad reaction to mm-hmm. begin, right? So parents are subject to the same fears as everyone else, and I think some specific fears, right? Because parents want the best for their kid, and if they think that being transgender is, if they associate it with sort of negative outcomes, like some of the things we've talked about, the difficulties around mental health, difficulties around uh, violence and discrimination, then parents think, well, that's not a good life for my kid, right? Mm-hmm. So they want they want the best for their kid. Uh, and I think without realizing it, they may not realize that, that they provide that foundation for their kid. They provide that good life by, with their support. So I think that parents have sometimes a negative reaction at first, but of course they're uh, they're open to change like anybody, right? So the need to to work with parents, and there are some youth who might be unsafe. There are some situations where there is abuse and there's a threat of violence, and of course they need to be uh, they need to be away from that parent, or there needs to be a lot of intervention to make sure things are safe. But in a lot of situations, parents need support so that they can get behind their kid and support their kid. They need someone to talk to about their fears. So there's really a lot of opportunities for service providers to create opportunities for youth and for their parents to, to get support. Absolutely, and I think peer support is one of the one of the best models. So it's something for child and welfare workers to think about is, you know, with adoptive parents whose children may come out as gay, lesbian, or tra- bi, or trans, or foster parents, might they benefit from being connected to one another so they can kind of process some of their struggles with other adults. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 6, a conversation with Jake Pine. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.partcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening.